see. It's not going to. Yeah. It doesn't work. Press play and then see. Okay, let's um, let's start. Let's start. Um, for those of you who were at mass this morning, you know it was the reading from uh, Isaiah about um, what was the leper's name? Naaman. Naaman, um, and the thanks, Joan, and the and the New Testament Christ was. Should have looked this up. Anyway, in the in the Old Testament reading, um, name is a leopard, and he has a chance to get cured, and he brings all of this wealth to give to Isaiah, Elisha, Elisha, and um, goes to his door and asks what he do, and Elisha says, um, "Go bathe in the Jordan River, or jump in the Jordan seven times and clean yourself." and Naaman is so offended that um, he starts to go away and go back home because he says, my rivers are better than the Jordan. Why, I came all the way here to bathe in this water. And one of his servants, it's always the servants. If you read Shakespeare's plays, it's always the servants who are, who are wise. You know, the, 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 the wealthy, powerful people are the ones that are in trouble and the servants are always the ones who, you know, servants come to him and says, if he'd asked you to do something extraordinary, you would have done it. Um, go do what he asked you to do. So he goes and jumps in the Jordan and he's healed. And, it's a, and then he goes to thank Elisha. And it's about um, um, getting out of that mindset where the, we have to do something great in order to be saved. But very often it's in the ordinary things that we find our salvation and, and what God offers. So. Um, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life, um, for the gift of yourself to us, particularly in the Mass, for your presence with us through this day, and now more particularly for this time of Lent, that we are called together as a church to move together, um, trusting in you um, for your help. Um, ask a special grace for all of us um, in this time of Lent, um, particularly with um, Dante and Virgil beside us, showing us very detailed things, that we not, we be careful of, of getting too touchy, too fussy, too sensitive, um, that we give ourselves to the discipline of Lent, um, give, restrain ourselves, learn to say no to ourselves, um, and um, to grow in a spirit of forbearance with each other. Help us to do this together in all that we do um, so that we can grow closer to you in this Lenten period. We ask this in Christ. Oh, no, sorry. I hope Dan will pardon me for this. I didn't ask him. Watch over Dan this week in his operation. Um, let his heart be quiet and trusting. Let the doctor hands and minds be sure in their work and let him come out of it well. Um, help us all um, in our prayers for each other. We ask this in Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Dan's told me um, yesterday, I hope you don't mind, I didn't ask him. He told me he's having an operation this Thursday, 
So I hope everybody will pray for him. Um, okay, Robert Frost. Um, we always start with a poem, um, a lyric poem. And the reason I chose Frost, as you all know, is that um, um, I was going to do Elliot's Ash Wednesday and Proof Rock, but decided they're a little bit hard and I'd like to feel our way into him. But Frost is a modern and we've been reading lyrics and I thought it would be good for you to read a mo- hear a modern um, who's on the threshold between a secular way of looking at things and um, the world of faith. Frost is very modern. Um, he, he's not he doesn't practice a, an established religion, but as you grow older and older, he, he clearly, in, and throughout his poetry, he shows that he's conscious of all the things that are raised in literature, even if he can't make them an explicit part of his poetry. So we have here a kind of counter type um, to the lyrics I've been reading to you, and I thought it would be interesting for you to, uh, to read something of this. I'm only going to read a couple today and then leave the rest to you. And I'd like to, I'd like to just make a brief comment or two about each of them. On page two is the poem Birches, which I think is, is one of his finest poems. It's just about a boy growing up and learning to work with nature, to bend birches. Because he's learned, he, le- he moved from California to New Hampshire, and that's where he spent the greater part of his life <coughs> farming and writing poetry. And, and his importance for us in America is not small because he was the first poet that, that had such an impact on a large popular audience that he brought poetry back to the common person um, in a country that doesn't care much, much for poets or poetry. So his importance isn't small. And one of the reasons he was so welcomed, so loved by the masses of people is um, that he wrote in a common language. I mean, he, his poems are the kinds of poems that a sixth grader could read or a, you know, an ordinary person who doesn't have much education. So he's well beloved. Um, but he's also deceptive, and I want to <laughs> show that tonight. Birches is one of his most beautiful poems. It's about a young boy learning to work with nature. He goes out to bend the birches, but in such a way that they'll keep their life, because if he goes too far, they'll snap them. And if he doesn't go far enough, when winter comes, they will break. So in one sense, this poem's about birches. He's a, he calls himself a swinger of birches. It's also, on front, if you read enough of Frost, you'll see this. It's really about poetry. And I know that's going to sound absurd. It's about poetry. Because what he's showing is this is what the poet has to do as well. Mm-hmm. He's going to work with this stuff. I'm not going to read that. I wish we had time. I can't. I, what I'd like to ask all of you is to go home and read it, and read it aloud. Because you know by now, poetry's meant to be read aloud. So read it aloud, and when you read it, notice on page three, towards the bottom of birches, I'd like to go by climbing a birch tree and climb back black branches up a snow-white trunk toward heaven. That's a modern. He, he's not a man of faith. He can move towards heaven, but in Frost's minds, that's not a clear alternative for him. So there's something in him inclining to heaven, but, he, but it's not a position he can take. 
So read this poem. It's a modern. It's, it's, I think it's one of the most beautiful poems of the 20th century. Read it aloud. Okay? And while you're reading it, know that in the back of his mind, he's also got poetry on his mind. It's not just about bending birches. It, it's about the struggle. This is from Marcy, too. This is about the struggle that anybody has to take on himself if he's going to write poetry. Okay? On the very last page is, is poem, one of the last poems he wrote called Directive. I think it's one of the most stunning poems of the 20th century. And, and, and I also think it's prophetic. This, this is Frost getting as close to po as prophecy as he will get in his life. I can't read it, it's a difficult poem, but once again, read it because I can't believe if you read it aloud you wouldn't be overwhelmed by it, even if you didn't understand it. It's a stunning poem to read, it's a stunning poem to read. So please take it home and read it. I'm gonna read a couple of poems, and notice on page three, I've, I've included two bird poems. If you go back to Homer, where lots of you have been now, you know that birds are Mm, carriers, carriers of oracles. They're prophets. Their, their domain is the heavens. They're close to the gods. Remember when we did the Iliad, it opened with um, Calchas reading the bird signs, and Polydamus kept quarreling with Hector because he watched the bird signs. Remember at one point he said the bird just flew over, an eagle captured a bird and killed it, and he took that as a warning for the Trojans, and Hector paid no attention to him, and Hector ends up getting killed. Almost every great poet that's ever written has written poems about birds. All of them. Shakespeare, Wilbur, we read um, some of the poets we've read. They've all writ, writ all of them because the bird for the poet is an image of the poet. That he's the one that brings those things to humans. I don't know if I, I gave this anecdote, but a long time ago when I, as I was growing into poetry, and I became aware of this in, in the poems. I remember waking up one morning and hearing the birds outside, and then a few days later I heard the forecast of the weatherman. The birds preceded the weatherman by days, and it was a reminder, Chaucer does it, all of, the, all of the poets do. The birds are much closer to nature. When they start singing, when they come back, you know what springs here. They know, they know it before the rational, you know, educated, um, weatherman. Yeah, thank you, weatherman. Yeah. Um, so every poet, every great poet, almost every great poet, has written poems on birds because the birds for him is an image of something in the poet that that has that quality. Okay. I'm only going to read one of them, the other bird. So let's start with that. I'm, go to page one. Robert Frost stopping by woods on a stony. This is how ridiculous this is. Suzanne and I at some point in our life found this poem on a Christmas card. It's, it's, a, it's a poem that sounds very lovely. It's a poem about suicide. <laughs> <laughs> I just throw that out. Just, I, um, wait, by the way, um, poets gathered together, um, Ivor Winters and, and um, John Crow Ransom and Robert Frost were at a, a gathering. And they were all talking about hard pastoral. And I think it was um, Ransom that shook his head and didn't know it. Frost and, um, who's the other one I mentioned? Um, gosh. 
I can't think of Holy Cow, the, the other pastoral poet, and Frost turned, Igor Winters, and Igor Winters and Frost turned to um, Ransom and said, hard pastoral is when you take your first, <laughs> listen to this, Marcy, you take your first thousand poems and burn them. <laughs> because that, that will show you how tough it is to write good poetry. Frost was a hard pastoral poet. He writes this poetry with this pastoral, farm-like, agrarian setting, all of them. But underneath them is some dark reality. I mean, I've been telling you this that most of us don't want to look at. Well, here's a poem stopping by Woods on Stowe Evening. It's found its way on to Christmas cards. It's about a, a man coming to a, a farm, he, to a place he's not accustomed to going. Even the horse acknowledges it. There's something wrong here. He looks at the woods and he's so attracted to the softness of the woods that for a moment he contemplates giving himself up to it. That is, he wants to let go of the burden of consciousness because that's what makes us humans. If we could only give that up, <laughs> we would be freed of all of our burdens. Um, anyway, just keep that on your mind when I, when I read the poem because most people read it and think, oh, this is such a sweet poem and they see it on Christmas cards and buy it and take it home and have no clue. Um, and then I'm gonna read Design and then uh, the bird poem. Stopping my woods. Whose woods these are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. He will not see me stopping here to watch his woods fill up with snow. My little horse must think it queer to stop without a farmhouse near between the woods and frozen lake the darkest evening of the year. He gives his harness bells a shake to ask if there is some mistake. The only other sounds the sweep of easy wind and downy flake. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. The dark, darkest evening of the year, the, um, he's not come here before, the horse thinks it's queer, there's something wrong, he shakes, he looks at the woods, the loveliness of them, and then says, and notice the but, because that but, that simple word but, turns the whole poem. It, the whole poem leans to that but, and then it turns. But I have promises to keep and miles to go, and repeats it, and miles to go before I sleep. It's a beautiful poem, beautiful poem. Does, 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 sorry? Design. Interesting thing about this, we've, we've read poems, Hopkins was one of them. Remember that Hopkins wrote most of his sonnets in the Italian sonnet? There would be an octave and a sestet. The, the, the Italian sonnet traditionally was written, um, was used as expressions of love. Petrarch did it, Hopkins did it, um, lots of poets have written in this sonnet form. Now look what Hopkins does with it. Remember, this is the love tradition that we've been reading in this whole time. And here's a modern who's using the Italian sonnet. He knows that sonnet. He knows this stuff inside and out. That's what he's been working with after he burned his first thousand poems. <laughs> he knows this stuff really well. This is his craft. This is his art. He loves it. He, he, he is like a, like a saint. He is he has committed his life to doing this. Design. I found a dimpled spider, fat and white, on a white heel all, holding up a moth like a white piece of rigid satin cloth. Assorted characters of death and blight, 
mixed, ready to begin the morning rite. Like the ingredients of a witch's broth, a snowdrop spider, a flower like a froth, and dead wings carried like a paper kite. What had that flower to do with being white, the wayside blue and innocent hue What brought the kindred spider to that height, then steered the white moth thither in the night? What, what but design of darkness to appall, if design govern in a thing so small? And notice his reflection, you know, the sestet, looking back on the moment. That is, if there's this dark design in larger things, it's going to be there in smaller things, in this, you know, little spider web, what happens. Remember, he knew that the Italian sonnet was, was principally used as, as an expression of love and experiences of love. The oven bird. Um, oh, no, no, sorry. Never again would Birdsong be the same. I hope you all go home and read the ones that I'm not reading and, and enjoy them. Never again would Birdsong be the same. He would declare and could himself believe that the birds there and all the garden round from having heard the daylight voice, the day-long voice of Eve, had added to their own an oversound, her tone of meaning, but without the words, admittedly an eloquence so soft could only have had an influence on birds when call or laughter carried it along. Be that as it may, she was in their song. Moreover, her voice upon their voices crossed had now persisted in the woods so long that probably it never would be lost. Never again would bird song be the same. And to do that to birds was why she came. He's looking back to Eve and Eve's voice. And imagine the harmony in the garden before the fall. I can't imagine anything being spoken that wasn't poetic. It had to be beautiful before the fall. He, what he's saying is that her, her voice is still present in the birds. So if you listen to the birds, it's that oversong. She, they carry it so it will never be lost. I mean, this is pretty remarkable. He, he's saying that there are things in nature that are conveyed to us through birds that take us back to Eden. It's like Eden still hangs over our life. Okay. God. Did you have any idea what you were getting yourself into? Okay, let's start Dante. Can you all read this? Sorry, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna, I went and got some new pens today. Can you all read it? Um, I wanna look at these from last week very, very briefly. Very, very briefly. Um, we've talked about language again and again and again, and I'd like to read something from Alan Tate that seems to me to apply to all of us and the task that we all have, particularly as Catholics um, who believe in the Word. He says this at the opening of a collection of his essays. Called them, it's the, an essay called The Man of Letters in the Modern World. To the question, what should the man of letters be in our time? We should have to find the answer in what we need him to do. He must do first what he's always done. He must recreate for his age the image of man, and he must propagate standards by which other men may test that image and distinguish the false from the true. 
but our own critical moment when all languages are being debased by the techniques of mass control, when all languages are being debased by the techniques of mass control, remember that, the man of letters might do well to conceive his responsibility more narrowly. He has an immediate responsibility to other men, no less than to himself, for the vitality of language. He must distinguish the difference between mere communication, he will go on to speak about that later, and the rediscovery of the human condition in the living arts. He must discriminate and defend the difference between mass communication for the control of men and the knowledge of man which literature offers us for human participation. Now you know I've been saying from the beginning how I'm, I mean why I wanted to encourage you to read these books and not read cliff notes or summaries because in reading them you partici we participate in that act. And I gave the analogy of the Eucharist. Um, Protestants see it as a commemorative. It's not a participation in a sacrifice. We believe otherwise. Literature is one of the closest things to that because through it we participate more fully in the human condition. So what's the task of the man of letters in the modern world? For Tate it's, it's twofold. He says it's to recreate the, for his age the image of man. Now everybody in this class has, has, all of us have before us this image of Achilles, Odysseus, Aeneas, now Dante. Compare those images with the sort of stuff that we get in stories today or TV. And, and ask yourself, what is the image of man that we have of ourself from mass communication today? Most movies, most, you know. Is it, is, it, is it helping us to recover the dignity that we believe we were given in God's creation and that is restored to us with Christ? So, um, this whole question about what the arts do is not a small one and take, takes this seriously. I'm assuming that most of all, most of us here stand in this position as the, uh, as the man of letters, that all of us as Catholics take language seriously and the image that it leaves us with. Um, because it affects us. It affects us all the time. It's the way we learn to see ourselves. That's the first, the image of man. The second was the vitality of language. What is going on with language today, either in mass media or in poetry, the literature, the arts, to help recover the vitality of language, what language can do to reveal us to ourselves, to help us grow inwardly. So um, we've been talking about language every week. It's, it's um, prophetic aspects. This is Tate speaking to language in a, um, in a less prophetic way, but equally important. The city, the individual, remember that um, we've seen now for a couple weeks that St. Augustine looked at the city as basically punitive. He was following Plato, and Plato's view of the body was that the body was depraved. So St. Augustine believed that the laws of the city were, were punitive, that they were meant to punish man, to correct him. And that was the image of the city up until that time when Aristotle was recovered about the 9th century, 10th, and, and, and then in the 11th and 12th when um, Dante, Albert, his master, uh, reads Aristotle, and then there's this sudden radical change. For Aristotle and Thomas, the city was not bad, and laws were not bad. For both of them, the human individual was a part of nature, and nature was intrinsically good, 
and the city was an outgrowth of nature, and we saw that the city was that condition. It, it, it can't be defined by mathematical boundaries. The polis was that condition in which the city made it possible for human beings to complete themselves, to attain their perfection, their natural perfection, become good. So it was different from the tribe on one respect and different from the empire. And we talked about those qualities present in America. There are elements of the race, the tribe, in America, and there are elements of the empire. Um, can we find those elements of the polis, that, that community in which people um, can work together to help them achieve their completeness as human beings? And, um, and we saw that for both of them, Augustine and Thomas, there were three images of the city. The city of man, directed towards man and his own good, and the city of God, and the, what we call the peregrine, the pilgrim city. Remember, the peregrine, which means wander. Um, and, and the church is that city. The churches here on earth, um, to, to gather us together as pilgrims, as exiles, this is not our home, our home is with God. So the church is here to, to help us together, help each other move back towards God. So those are the images. And we see those three images in the Commedium. In the Inferno, people have turned away. They, they, remember, the image, according to the Trinity, if we're made in God's image, then every human being, intrinsically, is self-communicating and receptive, both. The modern view of man is that we are isolated atoms, absolutely isolated, autonomous, separated. Our faith says that that's not so. As, as human creatures, it, it's in our nature to be self-offering, to communicate, and to receive. Aristotle said we're political animals. How can we grow if we don't learn from each other? That means being open. Very often it means being open to things we don't want to hear and receiving both. The people in hell have shut down. They're going nowhere. They're just mechanically repeating themselves, punishing themselves. And where they're together, they're together as a parody of love. They're not there reciprocating. They're there using each other to take out their sins on each other. So they're useful in God's economy, the plan of his economy. They're just there working out their sins, doing what they've chosen to do. Purgatory is a moving towards God and the Paradisos, we will see when we get there, is, if we ever get there, is that city in which man is completed. And the amazing thing about the Paradiso is, in the Paradiso, all of man's longings are satisfied, but because God is infinite, that satisfaction goes on infinitely. He is satisfied and wanting more. And if God is infinite, how can that longing more not go on forever? So this image of heaven being a static place is unreal, absolutely unreal. Is that clear? Is that clear? Okay. So we've talked about the city, Dante's method. Remember, we, we talked about the, the guardians and the movement of the soul and the stages that, that he, he's using an allegorical method and, and it's important not to just get caught up on the, uh, the different stages, but to see that there's a movement that each of the guardians marks a spiritual, images a spiritual evil. And if you look at the descent, it goes from this sort of innate goodness that man has to this um, 
romantic self-indulgence between Francisco and Paolo to isolation and then aggression and anger and so we can see the soul moving steadily in the direction of a deeper and deeper sin towards the very nature of sin itself until you come to the city of peace and which defines the city and we looked at the three levels at the level of violence um, this we saw in the first level the sins of the incontinence the leopard and last week we looked at the three levels of the lion. And remember the lion is a nobler animal. Anger is a nobler virtue. It, 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 it rises usually in questions of justice, some kind of nobility or good. All of the people we saw, almost all of the people, particularly as Dante moved towards the end, were educated, respectable. They were all respectable citizens of their world. Notable citizens, every one of them. They were reputable men. And here they are in hell. So Dante's showing education doesn't save people. What it does is mask. And so. Now, um, I want to go back to touch on some things just briefly before we move ahead today. Um, to, um, because we, we will carry this forward, but... Um, Father Flynn, in, in his homilies, often keeps, um, I, 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 can't, I, just, I can't tell you how grateful I am for him. He, he so often takes a reading from the Bible and presents it to us in terms of a choice, that we can keep going on doing what we're doing, or we can burn in hell. <laughs> I love his bluntness, too. I really do. I'm not kidding. I really do. I wish more priests. I wish more priests did that. Truly, truly. Am I getting into my? Um, um, he's really blunt, and his images. Which I mean, if you had a choice between going to heaven and going to hell, what would the, I mean, you're going to burn in hell, you know, forever. Dante doesn't give us that picture of hell, and yet Christ Himself often or sometimes talks about fire. So I want to look at this thing of fire for a second. Um, these are the sorts of images we get in, at the, in, the, in the level of the heretics. Remember when we saw Farinata, these were the heretics who were in these tombs, and fires were coming out of the tombs. We've got images of flames. Um, when Dante and Virgil are discussing um, the city and the division, on page 59, the first one, I'm, just, I'm not going to go there, I'm just going to give you the page numbers, you can write them down and check them out if you want. Farinatus is on page 52, when Dante and Virgil are talking about the division, it's on page 59, and there um, we have the phrase, inside the city of flame. Because when you move from the, what we can call the suburbs, you know, the, the uh, the all the levels of incontinence, you can call those the suburbs of the city, and then you get to the city of Dece, and you're inside the city. He calls it the city of flame. So that's one of the characteristics of the city, flame. It's people are burning. In the sodomists and users, which we encountered this last time, they're all turned, or, or no, last yeah. Remember, they're running around, they can't stop, on burning sand, and there's burning hail coming down on them. Mm. So we've got images of fire there. What, if we look ahead to this week in the Simonists, they're up, remember, this is where the, all the Catholic popes are. 
They're upside down on top of each other with fire dancing around their, and, and by the way, dancing around the soles of their feet. I love that. Yeah. I hope everybody got that pun. That that pun. The soles of their their soles of their souls were on fire. Um, S O U L's versus no, S O L's. Yeah, it was S O. But it, I mean Dante would. Anyway, um, flames were dancing around their feet, and we we will continue to see that image. So it's not that Dante's ignoring that. In one in one sense, we can say every soul in hell is in some respects consumed by fire. Why? Even though we don't see them engulfed in flame? For two reasons. One is because Dante wants us to see the effects of sin because what the people in hell are there by choice. God didn't put them there. They're, they're there. They, they refused him. They're there getting what they've chosen and he wants us to see the effects of their choices so that we can see what our sins look like, what they're really like. Um, that's why he's so, um, when he takes the pains that he does to, clear, to clearly differentiate one sin from another. But the other reason is this. All of them have refused God's light. God is light. If you refuse God's light, that goodness, that light turns, becomes a form of punishment. And I, I would like to think, if any of you can think of a natural example, I mean, if, you know, we can take out the garbage and enjoy, this is Aristotle, we're virtuous when we learn to take pleasure in the things we don't like doing that are good. If you go out there and you don't, you resent taking out the garbage, your whole mindset will be burning. You're just going to resent, be angry, bitter. It's like this burning thing in you is partly consuming you, whether you see it or not. Somebody can come up with another example, but... The positive one is, God is light. If you're rejecting that light, that light becomes a source of burning. It's a punishment to you. So, Dante's really clear. Everybody in hell, in, in some respects, is burning, but not the way I think we literally tend to think of it when somebody says, we're going to burn in hell. Because what everybody's getting in hell is exactly what they've chosen their own actions. That, that to me is more frightening than burning. Because if we don't ever stop to think about what we're doing and, and we continue it into the next life, how do we know that we've even lost heaven? And I'm going to come to that in a minute. We're going to keep doing what we've been doing because we think that that's okay. Remember, everybody in hell is in denial in some ways. They don't even admit that what's going on is real. That's why, that's why Dante stands outside of the world so we can see it more clearly. Is it almost like how sunlight, if it's focused, can be piercing? Like a magnifying glass? Yeah, except the, the difference is it's, it's, not a it's not a mechanical thing. It's a matter mm -hmm. of choice that the human will, when it takes a good and refuses it, that good takes a different form for them. It's a source of punishment. So... Um, the city, the economic, moral. Virgil, page 63, O oh, blind cupidity and insane wrath spurring us on. Remember, this is the new city. This is the new commercial regime. This is us. What spurs everybody on is new wealth, having more things, being better than somebody else. So the motives that drive everybody are cupidity, they want things, avarice, and envy. 
when somebody else has something we don't have, we envy it. We want it too. Turn to page 86. Just a good, we keep getting this. You, um, all the time at the bottom of 86. A new breed of people with their sudden wealth have stimulated pride and unrestraint in you, O Florence, made to weep so soon. Over and over and over again, Dante keeps reminding us that this is new wealth and it's produced a new breed of people. The sodomists, the homosexuals, the usurers making money. Remember at the very end, one, um, one interferes with breeding, takes breeding away, and one breeds money. So it's people who become very keen with their intellects, they're very educated, very refined, but, but they've lost those old virtues that Dante associates with Rome, the old Roman virtues. He says that again and again and again. Compare America now to, to the century when we went to war with Britain. I mean, and that's, that's if you read our founding documents and, and go back to the first century after we went to war with Britain and won our independence, and imagine farmers and you know people who had to work for their livelihood and this new world opened to them and we just fought for it. Compare it today when we're settled, affluent, more and more indulgent, um, what's happening to our national character. I mean, that's sort of what's happening to Dante here. He's watching that kind of change take place in this new commercial regime. Take a look at 82. Um, this Contrapasso, just two of them that, that I, we looked at last week but we didn't talk about and I want to just, I want to be sure we carry these with us when we go ahead. He's talking to Brunetto, remember this was his teacher, who was, te <laughs> was teaching him about the eternal nature of the human soul. Um, and then they finish and, and Brunetto runs off on page 83. Then he turned back and he seemed like one of those who run Verona's race across its field to win the green cloth prize. And he was like the winner of the group, not the last one in. T.S. Eliot made a comment on this and said he was puzzled by it. I look at this and it terrifies me, absolutely terrifies me. This is one of the most perfect examples of the contrapasso that I can imagine. Brunetto's acting like nothing's changed. He's doing exactly what he did in life. I mean, if you can, I mean, I. Think about, think about how good you are, the great things you accomplish, without looking at your sins, and carry that forward into the next life if you're damned. What are you going to be doing but continuing to do the same thing as if you're the winner? You know, he has no idea of the difference between this and all that we're going to see in the Purgatorio and the Paradiso. Is that clear? This is a terrifying image to me. If, if we think that there's nothing wrong with us and we go on continuing to do what we do, when we're in hell, we're going to do that and not even be aware of any loss. That's the condition of hell. It's scary, or at least it is to me. Turn to um, 86, or yeah, 80, 87. Virgil has just gone off to get um, um, the beast um, and Dante goes back because these three men they're also sodomists gather around and um, 
on page 86, I am from your city and your honored names and your accomplishments. I've always heard these are renowned men, well accomplished, educated, what would we call them today? Model citizens and whatever they On page 87, the three of them, as they're circling about, speak to Dante and say together in concert, if you always answer questions with such ease, they all spoke up at once, Oh, happy you to have this gift of ready, open speech. Therefore, if you survive these unlit regions and return to gaze upon the lovely stars when it pleases you to say, I was down there, do not fail to speak of us to living men. Dante's going to meet a number of people who are ashamed that he sees them, and there's going to be one of them. We're going to meet him shortly, and then we'll find him in T.S. Eliot's Proof Rock. We'll find him again. Who don't want to, who want to keep the fact that they're in hell a secret because that's the nature of hell. Why would anybody want Dante to go back to the world and speak of these men? Do not fail to speak of us to living men. How do you guys read that? Okay, so I came at this as a different thought. But I thought that, and this is just my theory, is that they wanted him to speak of them so the living men would see the fault. So they would kind of change and repent prior to dying. Is there any evidence that they see probably their faults? Probably not, but no, but probably not, but I get yeah, probably not. But that's how I. Wait a second, just for you know, there's that. Just this last week, we had that example where um, Lazarus. Yeah, remember, and he's taken to the kingdom, and the 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 people who didn't feed him see the um, there are all these people being taken care of, and he says, "Send them back to tell my brothers so that they don't." So there's an instance of somebody wanting to go back mm -hmm. to tell them so they can avoid the sins. And Christ says, <laughs> they didn't listen to Moses. What, you know, but I don't think, there's, I don't think these men tend not to see their sins or be aware of them. There's no, there's no indication of repentance in anybody in hell. That's true. They, I guess the biggest thing with me, and I, and I think maybe you put your own experiences or personality into it when you're reading. And I think it would be much more hellish to know that you were wrong and have to suffer than to think you were right. <laughs> but if you knew... And not realize that this is suffering because of your sins. Yeah. Remember, the, the people who know are in purgatory. The people in hell are the people who have lost the good of the intellect. These people are, are trapped inside. We can call it denials, whatever you want to call it, but... They're blaming others, pointing to others. So are they so full of pride that they can't, they can't see? Is that I think that's it. I mean, it, th there's such a sense of, st these what men are self, they, they live that life in the city, full of self-importance. They had all these accomplishments, just like Brunetto when he waves this flag like he's the winner. It's like they, they're st still so full of self-importance that they want, they don't even see. I mean, in some, that's the nature of hell. Remember, the people in hell, who, who sees their sins as they are? The, 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 the great thing that Dante's done is by placing himself there, we're always made aware of ironies. We can see what all these other people have refused to see. But don't you find that like with people like in today's world that you know, like if they don't take any ownership 
in the vault and they can blow it off. It doesn't, they are in denial, but they don't feel any remorse at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in today's living world. <laughs> yes. And so they feel no pain from that, I guess. Yeah, whether they do or not is, I mean, I. How much we manage to bury, I don't know. I mean, I can't, it's hard to make a, it's hard for me to make a generalization about that. My own experiences of denial is that whether we know it or not, it encloses us in some kind of disorder, suffering that becomes a part of our life. We may develop a tolerance, you know, I don't know. But anyway, I, I, I want to, let's go on because we've got, we've got a lot to look at here. My, my reason for going back is that here are two instances of that contrapasso where it's not just in terms of the punishment of the, the canto, the wind, or the rain, or the... It's the words that people are using that themselves speak of the contrapasso, that it makes us aware of what we've been seeing all along, that hell is the, is the place where people have lost the good of the intellect. So the act of seeing, of learning from seeing, is gone. It's stopped. That's part of the nature of hell. Okay, let's... <coughs> pity, oh boy. <laughs> Somebody raised this question. I'm not going to tackle this tonight. We've got to go on. I'll do it next week. We've got to look at pity because pity's not love, and so many people confuse it with love. Let me just read this one line, and I'm going to leave it. I don't want to talk about it because we've got to go on. But I'll leave it here. We will come back to it. When they get to the level of the soothsayers, um... That's the fourth Malbolge in level eight. Um, Dante sees the heads of all these sinners turned around, completely twisted around, so disfigured that he's overwhelmed with sorrow for a moment to see the, the, the grotesque effect of the, this sin. At the top of 107, I saw the image of our human form so twisted, the tears their eyes were shedding streamed down to... Remember, he's had a problem with pity from the beginning, because when he, the very opening, when he saw Francisca, because she was so beautiful, so, so charming, so articulate, so educated, that he passed out he just, to see such a beautiful creature in this you know, suffering. And, um, the tears their eyes were shedding streamed down to wet their buttocks to the cleft. Indeed, I did weep as I leaned my body against a jut of rugged, rugged rock, my guide, as Virgil's always, there he is. Um, thank God for Virgil, my guide. So you're still like all the other fools? Is this place, in this place, piety lives when pity is dead? For who could be more wicked than that man who tries to bend divine will to his own? Remember, the soothsayers are there because they want to make the world fit their mind, not learn to conform to God's will. I don't want to, I've I got to come back because pity's too great, but, but I want to watch our time tonight, so I'm going to leave it. What I'd like to do is turn to fraud. Um, um, I made a commitment, I'm going to be aiming for 810, 8, 810 and for to give us time to talk or ask questions or deal with things before we have to 
run out of here. Today we're going to look at the eighth level. Um, it's the level of fraud. It's the deepest level in hell. Um, remember there are three levels and in fraud there's nine. There's this multiple of the Trinity again. The first level was the incontinent. The second was the violent. And the third is fraud. And I've said before that um, all of the sins of... Remember, this is the suburbia. This is the outskirts of hell. This is the city of Dees right here. It marks the city. This is the suburbia. This is the weaker sins. From this point on, every sin involves a deliberate act of the will to destroy, to hurt somebody else. And fraud is different from violent in, in involving an active, active choice, but one that deceives, one that's hidden. There's an element of deceit in everything that's fraudulent. So there are two levels that we encounter here in the, in the eighth circle. Or, I'm sorry, there's two kinds of fraud that we will encounter here. One is called fraud simple. That's everything that we encounter in the eighth circle. Fraud simple involves um, a kind of fraud that's impersonal in its nature. In the ninth and last circle of hell, we encountered the sinners who committed a fraud that's, that Dante calls fraud complex. And that's a fraud that involves um, intimacies, personal intimacies. Judas, Brutus who betrayed, you'll see, I mean, um, Satan is eating Brutus and, and uh, Cassius and, and um, Judas. Because um, those were the sins committed against special trusts. So wherever intimacies, intimacies are involved and a special trust is concerned where we trust each other so there's a dependency between us and somebody betrays that, that's a graver sin than fraud simple which is less personal, more impersonal. Um, I'm going to come back to this notion too but I want to introduce this night, this, this, this topic, Walpurgis well, Night and a witch's Sabbath. Everything that takes place from this point on has a nightmarish quality. It's far more violent. I mean, I'm assuming you all feces smell, heads twisted, heads maimed, one figure being transformed into necromancy, rising from the dead, dying and coming up again. It all has the sense of a, of a black mass. At the center of it, you'll see, I'm, I don't want to get there because I don't want to give it away, but it's all pointing here. All of it has the sense of a Walpurgis night. It was the last night before spring started when the witches gathered. Lots of important works of literature use this. Faust did it, named two of his chapters after. Um, um, Edward Albee and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf entitles his second scene, I think, Walpurgis Night. If you've read um, Nathaniel Hawthorne, young Goodman Brown goes into the forest and sees the, the witch's Sabbath and loses his faith. So it's a, it's a common theme in literature. It's, it's the anti-Christ. It's the inversion of everything holy. 
So the, the maiming, the, the smells, the, um, the disfiguring, the grotesque of it all is far more nightmarish. We have entered a night, this, these worlds are almost still human to us, recognizable. When we enter the world of the order of fraud, we see just how monstrous humans can, what the monstrous things we can do to ourselves. You guys want to go on? <laughs> oh, God. oh God. Brave souls. Wait, pray for heaven? Yeah. Yeah, did I tell you Suzanne's remark when we did this in graduate school, when I read the Divine Comedy for the first time and had this meeting with my friend and she was reading it too and she got through the inferno and said, and started the purgatory and the first words, it's so good to be in a world where there's hope again. <laughs> um, Where's the word wall, wall purgus come from? It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's Germanic from, um, what's the, uh, it's, it's German, <clears throat> or Norwegian, it's German. Walpurgisnacht. Um, it means it's a witch's night. Um, it's, it's the day before spring when there are the, um, all of the spring festivals that are celebrating life. Walpurgis night is that night before when the witches gather, almost to put a curse on it. I don't, you know, I'm not sure, but... Um, and the second thing, and I just want to mention this briefly, the other thing that I want, I'd like to just point out so that you can be aware of is this notion of the human body and how important it is for the Divine Comedy. We've talked about the city. We've talked about lots of things. Um, I want you to think about the human body because it's been being maimed all along, all along. There's not a canto that we, well, I mean, Francisco and Paolo, but not main, but except for the lust. The human body is being maimed, tortured in every single canto. And, and when we get into the level of fraud, it's being ripped apart. I mean, it's just disfigured in the most grotesque ways. Why is that so? I mean, I've read this thing from Tate on Dante before. Remember when I read that passage where St. Catherine takes the head of the, ex the executed man with the blood, and she embraces it, and loves it, and and um, take comments. I'm going to read it tonight. I'm, we're we're um, we're getting close in time, so I'm not. Gonna, but I'm going to come back and read it. Tate found in that an example of what hopefully all of us of Catholics would come to. That um, she found in that head, with the blood pouring from it the sweet fragrance of Christ. It's identi she identified it with the Mass and the sacrifice in the Mass. And Tate's comment on it was, how many of us do that? How many of us abstract from the body because it's easier to deal with things outside of the body with our heads than in the actual body itself? And Catherine didn't. It's like she entered into the sacrifice and, and found Christ in that moment with the blood all over her. Um, when St. Catherine rests in so great a fragrance of blood, it's no doubt the blood of the offertory which the celebrant offers to God, cum adore suavitatis, in the odor of great sweetness, I think. But with the literal odor of the species of wine, not of blood, St. Catherine had the courage of genius which permitted her to smell the blood of Christ in Nicola Tula's blood clotted on her dress. 
She smelled the two bloods not alternately, but at one instant. We've been talking about this. She brought the anagogical and the literal together. She did not separate them for convenience. They were there in one. That's what happens in the Mass. When we take the Mass, the sacrifice is real. It brings the whole order of heavenly sacraments, miracles, into the present to become a part of our lives. We do not separate. The Protestant mind separates it out. The anagogical is gone. The body for Dante as a Catholic um, was more real than it is, I think, too often for us. The great burden of the poet, as for the rest of us, is, is an acceptance of the body and all of its burdens, particularly in the way of restraint. Let me repeat that. The great burden, the great trial for most of us is accepting the burdens of the body. We've got this wonderful angelic mind, and so often it wants to escape the body, get out of it. Not restraint. I mean, we, we're so led, so we're not guided by the nature of the body. We do it violence all the time. The body is one of, we're not angels. It's, it's God's great gift to us. So we should be learning from it. Do we hear it? Do we listen to it? Um, it's one of the great themes of the Divine Comedy. And you see that. Um, Dante's fainting. He walks over the tumbling rocks. When he gets into the boat, it drops. Um, Virgil turns him around at the gates of Dece. Um, and we see all these perversions. And, sh and here, in one of these levels, and I think it's in, in the fifth level, when they come to the broken bridge, Dante st starts climbing up the, the rocks. <laughs> And he gets worn out, and he sits down, and he leans on his elbows to rest. Virgil has no good words for him. He keeps saying, he said, like, a, like trying to get your teenage son out of bed. Get up. What do you think you're doing? It's time you know, to get off to school. He, I mean, he's really sharp with him. Over and over and over again, Dante reminds us that he's in his body. And it's a way of reminding us of the importance for us, because we're humans. We're incarnate creatures. The importance of it was, if it wasn't clear before, it was made clear by Christ because he entered into it. It's our, that's the great gift, our bodies. We're not angels. So keep this human body in mind because we're watching in the inferno, at this, in the level of fraud, we're watching all the horrible maimings that we work on our bodies, the things that we do because we don't accept its limits, what it does for us. Okay, let me, let me I'm just going to quickly go over... Um, some of the levels. So, for the next couple of weeks, we'll be in the level of fraud in this in this nightmare world. We can if we can stand it together. Um, we are tonight. We're looking at the first seven levels: the panders and seducers, the flatters, the simonists, the sorcerers, the bearders, the hypocrites, the thieves. Turn to page ninety-six. Just very quickly, when Dante comes to the first level, this is the first malbulge, which means evil pocket. You all got that handout, that picture, right? This is what they look like. There are these pockets, these, these ditches with bridges over them. And all that happens takes place in those ditches. So like in the, in the level of the, um, the flatters, the bottom of that ditch is filled with excrement. Dante's word is shit. Um, he, he, he doesn't mince. I mean, you know, they're, they're moving about in it, so you can't escape the smell. Mm. On page 96, he sees 
two lines going in opposite directions. One are the panders who, who use people to exploit their desires for themselves. And going in the opposite direction are the seducers, those who seduced others for themselves. And notice on page 90, 97, <clears throat> he's talking to Venedico here um, at the top of 97. I'm not the only Bolognese who weeps here hardly. This place is packed with us. In fact, there are more of us here than there are living tongues. So there's the city. It's always there. I call on your own memory to witness. Remember we have avaricious hearts. Dante pounds that at us. The great sin, avarice, wanting too much. Just at the point a devil let him have the feel of his tailed whip and cried, move on you pimp. You can't cash in on women here. Notice the language that we use those terms to cash in on somebody. But we use it as people. We use people as things. Um, going the other way are the seducers, and Virgil tells Dante to look, that, that there's Jason. He's the one that, remember, seduced um, Medea and led the expedition for the Golden Fleece. At the very bottom of the page, what majesty he still maintained. He's in hell. And he doesn't, he's got this great, there it is again, this great majesty, like he's in his element. He is Jason, who by courage and sharp wits fleeced the Colchians. There's that word. Remember, he, he was the one that looked for the golden fleece, and, and Dante's using that word as a verb to show that he cheated him, fleeced him, out of money. Too avaricious, again. At the bottom of 99, they come to the flatterers in the next Malbolge. This is the one filled with excrement. And um, at the bottom, they meet this whore. Um, lean out a little more, look hard down there, and you can get a good look at the face of that repulsive and disheveled tramp, scratching herself with shitty fingernails, spreading her legs while squatting up and down. She's doing here what she did in life. How can she not? That's what souls in hell do. Think about the thing. Think about how often we use our minds to justify our actions, to cover them up. That's what hell is. It's um, people using their minds to excuse what they're doing. They don't see. Here's, here's Thias, and notice what she says. It is Thias the whore who gave this answer to her lover when he asked, am I very... She's a prostitute. Notice she's not with prostitutes. She's with the flatterers. The lover that she's... <coughs> Gave, given her favors to. The lover says, am I very worthy of your thanks? Very, nay, incredibly so. She says, what a great lover you are. Is she, is she being honest? No, she's just flattering him to get him back again. I think, I think our eyes have had their fill of this. We go on. The simonists are those um, who, um, who, who, who sold church offices. And that's where he meets um, Nicholas who's upside down with his feet up with flames dancing on his soul. <laughs> and Nicholas mistakes Dante for Pope Boniface because he's expecting Boniface soon and we know that Boniface died just a few years later and where he go, I've got, the, I mean, we'll come to this question. I've asked it before. Is Dante being presumptuous and putting all these people to hell because we're not supposed to speak for God? Or I, I don't want to, but remember, Boniface is supposed to be there a couple of years later. On 107, 
they come to the level of the sorcerers. These are the magicians, um, soothsayers, um, magus figures. And they, on page 107, they meet Tiresias. Do you remember who Tiresias was in the Odyssey? Tiresias? When Odysseus went to the underworld, he was told to go see Tiresias, the seer, the prophet, because he would tell him how to get home. So, and Tiresias is known as a prophet for having been both a male and a female. And the story is laid out here. So here's Tiresias, and then um, we get the story of the, the woman, Manto, the musician, or the, um, the magician, who gave up, who presumably gave up her powers on page 111, because Mantua is the town where Virgil came from, and she was its foundress. Um, at the top of 111, see there Guido Bonatti, see Asdente, who wishes now he had been more devoted to making shoes, too late now for repenting. Remember, repentance is over here. They've chosen. See those wretched hags who traded in needle, spindle, shuttle for fortune telling and cast their spells with image dolls and portions. This is the place today where we would find voodoo doll, you know, people or fortune tellers or card readers or all the forms of spiritualists who, who presume to speak for God to, about those things that they don't know. Um, because remember, that was Virgil's criticism that I read you earlier on page 107. For who could be more wicked than that man who tries to bend divine will to his own? Remember, their heads are turned backwards. They use their intellects the wrong way. They tried to make the world conform to their mind, as if to show they had this great power over the world. Um, 113, 114. He comes to the level of the barriters. These are the men who do what the Simonists did, but in the <coughs> public order. They sold public offices. We call that um, graft today, huh? Graft, where people will buy off judges for their judgments, or lawyers, or jurists, or you know, um, um, they twist justice. They they sell justice. Avarice at work again in another way. Um, when the canto opens, a devil, they're on the bridge, and a devil is coming to the bridge to throw the sinner into the muck, the boiling pitch. And remember, the, it's pitch because um, money was sticky. They couldn't let go of the money. So they're being punished because the, it's like being in glue. They're getting exactly what the effect of the sin. He throws the sinner in, and... Um, Dante meets all of these devils. They're so frightened by them for a moment that Virgil says, hide yourself for a moment, and Virgil goes to approach the devils and talk with them. And when, it's, when he's made it clear that they're there by God's will, they're deflated, and he calls Dante up, and then the two of them on page 115 ask for directions. On the page 115, towards the bottom, their prongs were aimed at me, and one was saying, now do I let him have it in the rump? This, there's this fixation on tails and rumps. The, the name of the, well, I want to come to that. On page 114, the Malakota is the leader. Malakota means evil tail. And this, this one says, now do I let him have it in the rump? Sure, stick him good. And then the other one says, no. 
the leader calls all of them together on 116, front and center. It's like a sergeant calling a troop. Front and center. Alkino, he calls them all. You, he calls ten of them. Now tour the ditch, inspect the boiling tar, watch over people, and escort these two men to the, to the next Malbolge. As they're leaving, the, the, all of the devils, remember these are fiends now because we've gotten out of that mythic world into actual guard, demons, I mean angel, fallen angels. So we're out of a mythic world into a real world here. All of the men who've just been marshaled up like a platoon on a parade ground, I will not have you frightened for them. They're all grinding. Um, let them do all the grinding they want. They do for it's for, it's for the boiling souls, for not us. Dante's frightened, but Virgil says, don't worry, they're doing it that for show. Before they turned, left face, all these military commands along the bank, each one gave their good captain a salute with farting tongues, you know the way people do by imitating that noise, um, pressed tightly to his teeth. And he blew back, the leader, with his bugle of an asshole. That is, he let out a fart to answer them. <laughs> now, on Canto 22, Dante, Dante picks that up and he says, I have seen troops of horsemen breaking camp, opening attack, pressing. I've seen scouts ride, he goes on and on, to the tune of trumpets, to the ring of clanging bells, to the roll of drums. I mean, he's having fun. I, he, this is unlike any two cantos that we've read to this point, and it's pretty grotesque, but, but I never saw cavalry or infantry or ships that sail by landmarks or by stars signal to set off by such strain bugling. <laughs> so on our way, we went with those ten fiends, what savage company, but in church with saints, with rowdy good for nothings in the tavern, that is, in, in room, do as the Romans do, so he's going to go along with them. Just for a minute, why all this stuff with tails and farting and why do you, this is bear tree what's um is this dante just letting go wildly for a minute or is there something going on here what do you anybody karen did you have something no I'm guessing here. I, I mean, I'm always puzzled with it. It's not like Dante to just, he, he has a meaning. He makes, my guess is the farting. The, one of the most important things, this, this is one of the few times when he takes up two cantos for one Malbolge. He usually does a, a canto per uh, Malbolge. He spends two. Beartree, he was thrown out by judgments. He, he sees how awful justice is worked out in the world, how, how un unjust it so often is. Um, and remember, what we, and what we're gonna see right in the next one is, the devils are gonna take Ciampola out of the, out of the muck, they're gonna lift him up and they're gonna, th they're getting ready to throw him back in and Ciampola on page 119 says, no, no, which would be better, throw me back in, or I can go get some of my friends to come out here and you can torture them some more. You remember right. on page 119? The devils say, no, he's just trying to trick us. And one of them says, no, no, let him go on page 121. Um, middle of the page, and he full of tricks in his trade had taught him, said, tricky I surely am, especially when it comes to getting friends. He's telling him he's gonna get more friends in trouble, so let him go. So finally they do it, the devils go hide behind a rock, Champola runs out 
jumps in the muck and he escapes them. And the devils are so furious. One of them, one of them wanted to let him go um, because he, he wanted to get into a quarrel with the other devil. So Champola jumps in the muck. The one devil flies out. The other devil flies after him. They, they get dragged into the muck themselves and they're stuck in the muck and the devils have to get them out. This is two cantos. At the, at the at the level of, of bear tree. What is Dante doing here? And why all these rumps and tails and farts and well, but the other what of all of the places that we've been, I mean this they seem to have this group of devils that are monitoring whatever is happening here. Why is that different from every of all of the other pits and the like that we that we've encountered along this journey. Mm-hmm. I mean what 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 has driven this group to, to be that to I guess to monitor and, and do whatever they're doing. I mean that seems rather unusual compared to everything else we've seen so far. Although I think we're supposed to assume what we're seeing here goes on everywhere because that's the nature of that is their devil's marshalling and guarding. That's what the guardians do, but Dante's yeah, but there's a whole group of them. I mean, yeah. there's a, there is a, there is a before it's always been like one or maybe two, but now you've got this 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 yeah you know, a, 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 a platoon basically. Yes, yes. Really, uh, it seems rather unusual. If, yeah. What 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 was so special about about why anybody why you put My that emphasis on there? Is that when the body is in such disorder, what it does is it belches it. It bugles it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, You're being we, nice. When we've eaten too much, you know, we just eat longer. Every time I eat, I'll tell my wife. How awesome. about trumpet? <laughs> right. <laughs> that was Dante's word. Here's my sense of it for what it's. I'm. I'm. Um, it, it. When. When they. Um, oftentimes, when the devils have to face the truth of something, they collapse was like one of the guardians letting, remember I gave the image of the air being let out of his sails, he just collapses. That, what da- I think what Dante's having fun with, well a couple of things, one is hell is divided against itself. It has to be that way. Yeah. Remember, that's from Christ. Hell is divided against itself, so while hell has the appearance of structure and order, we know because they're devil, no honor among thieves, yeah. that even even though they're all contained within the scheme of punishments as guardians, within themselves they are divided. So in themselves, these things work out for their own torment and punishment. We don't, Donnie doesn't show it, but I think we're to assume it goes on at every level because the angels are guarding, you know, the whole malbulge around the whole circle. What he's showing us is he's giving away a quality of hell again. That hell is divided against itself, there's no honor, and even more importantly, that when you look at it, it's all gas. There's nothing there, and it's foul. You know, it's not like letting air out of a sails. When the air comes out here, with all the other smells going on, we're supposed to have this sense that it's putrid and foul. And so, I think it's just in their way of Dante exposing that that hell is a parody of everything good. Reverse it and you'll find it, its real meaning. It's empty. It collapses. It's gas. It's, there's nothing there. Um, and what is there is fouled. They put themselves, they end up in the muck. And, and they're deceived. 
remember the, the bearder is the one who, who fools others into, into getting something that's not real. So even Chiampolo tricks them. I mean, he's doing what the bearers and the, and the angels, I mean, the, the fiends buy into it. So, um, it, it, it is, and it's, to me, it's one of the funniest um, um, cantos in the whole Divine Comedy. He comes to the level of the hypocrites, and there on page 123, he sees Caiaphas. Um, on page 127, Caiaphas is lying flat. All of the, all of the men have these leaden cloaks. They're, you know, they're, um, they're gold on the outside, the way the Pharisees were. I mean, the image here is the Pharisees, gold, righteous men, very religious, who, 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 who gave an appearance to the world, how good they were, how righteous they were, but inside, nothing but foulness. Virgil, on page 127, I saw Virgil staring down amazed because the last time he crossed here was before the coming of Christ. So for him to see this, because remember, it's been said, there's a couple of that he was um, summoned out by a witch. Virgil had something, so he's gone out before. He's looking at this as amazement because he doesn't know Christ, and this was before the, before the coming of Christ. Most of them in here are friars on page 126. It's this group of friars <laughs> and priests um, who are walking around this way. The thieves in 129. It's one of the one of the one of the I think one of the most amazing set of. Once again, this is two cantos. He shows Vanni Fitch Fucci on page um, 132 as they're. As they're watching, this soul comes and a snake darts out and hits the neck and the, the sinner crumbles into a, a pile of ash on page 132 and turned into a heap of crumbled ash and then these ashes scattered on the ground began to come together on their own quickly to take the form they had before. He comes to his identity again and Dante speaks to him and he identifies himself, 133, I love the bestial life more than the human, like the bastard that I was. I'm Vanni Fucci, the beast. He tells the story of, of um, stealing um, a sacred object in the sacristy, sacristy, and that's why he's being punished here. He's so upset. This is, goes to this thing again about the contrapposite. He's so upset that Dante recognizes him because he doesn't want to be revealed to the world that he spitefully tries to wound Dante. At the bottom of 133, he, he gives the prophecy of what will happen to the whites, that, that they will be expelled from Florence and Dante will lose his... And he says, um, So open your ears to hear my prophecy. Uh, Pistoia first shall be stripped of all blacks and Florence then shall change its men and laws. Um, um, there will be um, battles in a violent storm above Pacheno's fields, where rapidly the bolt will burst the cloud, and no white will escape without his wounds. Dante will, the whites will be defeated, Dante will go into exile. And I have told you this so you will suffer. Now go on over, even though you weren't supposed to read it, on 25 it opens. When he had finished saying this, the thief shaped his fist into figs. That's like giving the finger, excuse me, giving the finger to somebody. He shaped his hand that way. Shaped his fist into figs and raised them high and cried, Here, God, I've shaped them just for you. It's, to me, it's one of the 
It just shakes me. I mean, he's fingering God. It's just a... From then on, all those snakes became my friends, for one of them at once came round his neck as if to say, that's all you're going to... And then they... What happens next is amazing because what Dante describes is the souls interchanging their bodies. It's the punishment for thieves because thieves took what wasn't theirs. So all the, the constant contrapasso of the thieves is to lose their identity. They keep interchanging it with somebody else. They become somebody else. It's a, to me, it's one of the most amazing descriptions um, in all of the Commedia. I've got two questions to ask you um, because we've got to stop, but I want to take a couple minutes. We can't take much time, but two questions. Just um, one, where would sex trafficking be today? Wait, oh, by the way, think about the, um, um, the panders. It seems to me Dante would include mass media, journalism, um, all those things in the modern world that pander to people's emotions to get them to do something to exploit there. So when you think about this, don't just get stay in Dante's world. I mean, try to imagine our world today, given its nature from what we're learning from Dante, and where what will happen, you know, in the, in the face of any of this. So I've got two questions. One is, where would sex trafficking be? And the other one, why, why are the thieves lower than simony? Simony means selling holy offices. One of the, it's the third, it's the third Malbolge down, right? Stealing is the seventh. It's considerably lower. So Dante sees that as a much graver sin. Why? Let's take sex trafficking just for a second. Where would sex trafficking go? What would, what, where would, what would Dante do with that today? I'm saying it because it, to me it's one of our most horrible, it's not just prostitution, it's men taking girls and boys that are helpless and selling them into you know, this trade. But where would sex trafficking go? What do you guys do with that? Anybody? If you know, remember that the whole thing is going to kick Violence doesn't stop at the level, there's not, I mean, we can't read fraud and not see, it, 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 I mean, it's more horribly violent than anything we see in the level of violence. It's all in the name of fraud, but everything down there is grotesque, maiming, cutting, heads turned around, heads chopped off. Um, what about stealing and simony, the, the vice of simony that... Dante put a couple of popes in hell because they sold their offices. Um, why is thieving, stealing, and Dante's following St. Thomas here, why is stealing more heinous than selling church offices, would you think? Because he's stealing as human beings rather than things. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, when you steal from a person, their dignity or their virginity, anything like that, that's really far worse than stealing money. Uh, you're, you're it's like a, the, I think the, the popes, they're doing it for the benefit for prestige and office for self. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how to say it, but when you're, the thieves are 
and they're not taking anything away from somebody. They're not hurting anybody. They're just. I don't know about that, but well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, compared to thieves, where you're actually taking something from somebody, and that may be a precious gift. It may not be, but it, it's it's removing something from somebody, and the sinners are just raising themselves up. So are you saying that thievery is more personal? Okay. I don't see them there. Is that that's is that what you mean? It involves other people more than similar. And more grief as you're saying because um Doc, do you wanna I asked Suzanne when we after dinner do you wanna make your comment? What was your response when we talked about it there? What the difference that you made is pretty much I think in agreement with what you're saying. But, is that to take something from somebody that's um, you're taking away from something that they possess that was part of them. It's and really a violation. It's a violation. You're not taking it away from anybody. It's not like you take it from a priest and sell it to somebody else. It's something that that any that more than one person is going to. It's a it's a more impersonal, simony. Um, Thomas, following Aristotle, would have said that a person's property is an extension of himself. It's who he is. So to take a person's home, to take a wife, a child, is to steal from that person, to take that person's selfhood away, part of that self. Simony, I mean, I, to me it's a really, I mean, it's, it's so fine because it seems to me there's there's parallels and analogies there too. When you're taking an office, it doesn't belong to you. Um, you're stealing from Peter in some way. I mean, but but more indirectly because it's an office. It is something impersonal. But yeah. So then, sex trafficking would even be worse because you're not stealing a thing. You're stealing from your very self. I mean, you're stealing from someone's very self. When I think, I mean, my yeah, I, that when I thought about it, I thought it combines. Um, it combines um, um, something holy with thieving because when you take a child, a boy, a girl, but remember the, the panders in the first level are doing panders or pandering sex. Panders are pimps, they use a woman to, you know, they, so they're exploiting a person. Um, for their own personal, and they're exploiting other people's passions, so they're using people. There's nothing that goes on in hell, nothing that, in which people don't use other people as objects. That's a given in hell. That's the nature of hell. Pimps do that. In sex trafficking, you're, you're pandering, you're a pimp, you're taking a child, but you're also stealing because you're taking that person's, you're stealing a child, so I mean, I just, I, I don't know, there is, Dante doesn't have a level, but in some ways it's more heinous for me in that sense than either um, pandering or stealing, because it combines both of them in a, in a more awful way. It's just... Where do, where, do, where do killers and murderers and the like fall into this? The, we saw the murders, they were the ones in uh, the first circle of the river of blood and the violent they killed. Remember, it's they were, they were killing, right. destroy, killing other people. Right, but they, you know, to me, I mean, they, you would think, I mean, that's even worse than, than thieves, basically. I mean, you're taking, you know, denying someone a life. You're stealing their life, basically. Which is the greatest theft there is, basically. Stealing their sense of self. 
Hmm? You're stealing their, their identity, their sense of self. You know, I mean, if you think about, you was that you said about sex trafficking and how psychologically um, injured or wounded those children are. I know. <laughs> Suzanne's making faces at me right now. Okay, um, I, I would be so glad um, if you would take these sorts of questions out and think about them in our world, like um, like media exploitation or graft in the court in the justice system or the difference between murdering a person and stealing and what the implications are spiritually for the people, you know. Um, Dante's helping us to look at the real nature of sin and its consequences and important distinctions. So next week we will do the next eight cantos. We're getting close to finishing. Um, I, I think we'll finish before Easter. Um, I'm not sure what the schedule is, but anyway, next week is it? I'm, I'm, it, I'm assuming this this timing is okay. Eight eight cantos a week is sufficient, or do you want to do more? <laughs> no, is this okay? Is this okay? okay? Okay, good. Okay, all of you guys have a good week. Have a good week. Enjoy, Dante. Ha, ha, ha.